Welcome to the Naval Institute podcast, Naval History Edition. I'm Brian O'Rourke, one of the editors of Naval History Magazine and Proceedings Magazine. With me today is co-host, editor-in-chief of Naval History, Richard Latour. Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Brian. Thanks. Great. Uh, anything exciting happening in Naval History this month? Well, we've got a lot going on. Our uh, April issue is currently at the printer, due out in a week or so, and we have a cover story about Operation Iceberg, which of course was the Battle of Okinawa. It'll be the 75th anniversary coming up. And we also have part two of David Sears' articles about Samuel Elliott Morrison. The first part in our February issue covered Morrison at Morrison's activities during World War II, where he was bouncing around uh, uh, reporting, actually gathering information about naval operations. And the second part, which is in April, uh, covers the years, the many, many years it took him to write his magisterial naval history of naval operations in World War II. That's a classic series. There's also a, uh, the, the articles don't get into it, there's also a two-volume sort of condensed version of it called the Two Ocean War that's uh, had a pride pride of place on my naval history bookshelf for a long time now. Yes. Uh, It's a big month coming up for the Naval Institute. Uh, You may hear some construction noises in the background today. The uh, work on the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center continues apace. And um, we've got the Naval Institute West Conference, co-sponsored with AFSEA, heading to San Diego in a couple weeks. That's going to be a big event on the 2nd and 3rd of March. If you're in the area or can get to the area, can't urge you strongly enough to attend. Uh, we'll have the three Sea Service Chiefs, uh, General Berger, Admiral Gilday, and Admiral Schultz there. Uh, Admiral Davidson from Indo-PACOM will be there. Uh, Bob Work, Ellen Lord, two uh, big players in the defense space. Uh, it's going to be a, a, an awful lot going on, more than, or at least in the vicinity of, 400 exhibitors in the exhibit hall. So the uh, proverbial good time will be had by all. And our usual hosts, uh, Ward Carroll and Bill Hamlet, will be doing some live podcasting from the exhibit hall. So if you're there, make sure you stop by the Naval Institute booth and introduce yourself and check things out. Great. And right now, the Naval Institute is commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Iwo Jima. You can go to our website, www.usni.org, or check us out on Facebook. And we have articles from the, from uh, both proceedings in naval history that we're featuring, as well as oral history excerpts and uh, Naval Institute Press book excerpts, all on the subject of Iwo Jima. And today, we're fortunate to have a guest to discuss the Battle of Iwo Jima, with us today is Dr. Mark Foltz. He's the class of 1957 postdoctoral research fellow at the U.S. Naval Academy. And he's also the author of the cover story in the February issue, The Common Will Triumphant, about the Battle of Iwo Jima. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Richard Bryan, for having us, uh, having me. Um, <laughs> Glad to have all of you here. All of us. Uh, yes. uh, the entirety <laughs> of me. Um, to be able to come here and and speak about this uh, particular uh, battle uh, as a former Marine myself is a uh, a really big honor. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you you mentioned you're a Marine. Can you describe your background? Yes. Um, so 
I uh, joined the Marine. I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2002. Um, I was in. I was a senior in high school, starting the fall of 2001, and I was trying to figure out, you know, like most 18 year olds, what path their life was going to take. Uh, and I decided, I, well, I have two goals that I'd like to accomplish. One is I'd like to have a college degree, and two, I'd like to spend some time uh, in the service. Um, I wasn't sure what order that was going to be, uh, but for those of you listening at home who caught me when I said fall of 2001, uh, September 11, uh, 2001 pretty much made the choice for me. I decided mm-hmm. to forego college, at least for the time being, and uh, go in the Marine Corps, um, much to the chagrin of my parents at the time. Um so I was living with my mom and my stepfather at the time, and they were furious about me going into the Marine Corps. <laughs> okay, if you're going to go into the military, why not the Air Force? Why not get something that will give you a transferable skill uh, when you get out? Uh, and I, I just – I kind of went through the motions and told my stepdad that I would research other branches. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the only option for me, the only, literally the only thing I wanted to do – in the military was the Marine Corps. And the only thing I wanted to do in the Marine Corps was the infantry. And I think a lot of that had to do with um, my father, who was also a Vietnam mm-hmm. uh, Marine uh, veteran. Uh, he was with uh, First Recon uh, in Vietnam. And growing up um, with him, uh, especially, especially my earlier days, uh, he had this kind of mystique about him that me and my two older brothers picked up on. Um, and because of him, I was, I was, uh, I think I've always been interested in the Marine Corps, um, in some sort of sense. Um, so I, I, I did my four, uh, I did my four years in the Marine Corps. I went to Afghanistan in 2004. I was, uh, a member of first battalion, six Marines, Charlie company, third platoon, um, second squad, first fire team. Uh, and then, um, so went on the 22nd in 2004 to Afghanistan and then went to Iraq, Fallujah, Iraq in 2005, um, uh, got out in 2006 and went to college and uh, developed an interest in military history, I think partly because I had participated in some military mm-hmm. history uh, and um, decided to go to graduate school and continue my studies in military history. And uh, when it came time to pick a topic, I reverted back to my old interest in the Marine Corps, except this time it was going to be an academic uh, interest in the Marine Corps. And one of the one of the main impetuses behind that was, of all people, uh, Charles Krulak, former commandant of the Marine Corps, had just become the president of Birmingham Southern College, hmm. which was wow. 30 minutes up the road from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, pre- my professors at Alabama told me about that. And they said, well, why don't you see if you can get an interview with the guy? And I did. I, 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 I emailed his uh, office. His secretary got back with me and uh, said that he would love to speak with you. And I, um, I went and spoke to a living legend in the Marine Corps. Um, mm-hmm. And I just – it was a very, very interesting conversation. Um, I was I was bouncing ideas off of him about, you know, looking at doing our dissertation on the Marine Corps. And I told him why I was interested in the Marine Corps and all this other kind of stuff. And um, he had a uh, shadow box on his wall. Um, with all his medals and everything else. And he had a cross-section of a piece of wood, and he, he told me about that piece of wood. It was, it was uh, a piece of wood from Bella Wood. Um, wow. And um, he said, you know, if you're really interested in the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps' connections to society and all those other kinds of things, which I was, he said, you, you might start there. Mm-hmm. You might start looking at the Battle of Bella Wood. Um, 
And I did, and that turned into a dissertation project. My dissertation uh, looked at uh, the Marines in, in the World War One era. It's tentatively titled The Globe and Anchorman, um, U.S. Marines and American Manhood from 1914 to 1924. Um, researching that project got me very much into not just the combat operations of what the, of, of, the Marine, of the Marines' history, but also the public relations side of their history, mm-hmm. the kind of the cultural side of their history, um, which um, allows me to research and write on. I can I can take that angle uh, and apply it to different battles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've I've interned for the Marine Corps History Division twice. Uh, and while I was there, I did some pretty in-depth research on the Battle of uh, Iwo Jima. They call it the Keystone Battle Briefs. Anybody listening, if you're looking for information on mm-hmm. uh, any of, the, of these major battles, uh, the Battle of Billa Wood, I think there's one on Quezon, there's one on Iwo Jima. Uh, go to the Marine Corps History Division's website, and they have Keystone Battle Briefs that you can look at. Uh, the one on Iwo Jima is one of the ones I wrote. The one on Billa Wood is another one that I wrote, um, which was uh, a really fascinating experience. Um, so that's a long way of me saying that, uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a Marine Corps historian and, uh, I'm a PhD Marine Corps historian. I come by it honestly, I think. Um, uh, and it, uh, I think it's a fascinating Unlike all subject. those dishonest PhDs it's, As opposed there. to all those dishonest PhDs out there. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a fascinating background. Now, if we can turn to the Battle of Iwo Jima. And you mentioned mystique. There is a mystique about the Battle of Iwo Jima. And it was... Certainly uh, one of the Marines' toughest fights, if not the toughest fight of World War II. Could you just give us some background about the battle? Sure. Um, so the battle took place in um, mid to late February, into well on into March of 1945. In 1945, World War II was pretty old at this point, um, depending on when you want to start the war. Did it start in 39? Well, for the United States, it started in 41, December 41. So for the, for the United States, we're well into, you know, uh, we're well into the fourth year of the war. Um, strategically speaking, the United States is closing in on um, the, the Japanese home, home islands. Um, in, in Europe, uh, the Allies are driving against um, uh, Nazi Germany from both the east and the west. Um, and in the Pacific Ocean, um, the Pacific Theater, the Marines and the Navy, and you have MacArthur in the Philippines, um, and, you, and you have the Marines and the Navy going up that central uh, avenue of approach to, towards uh, Japan. So they're really kind of closing things in. Uh, and Iwo Jima is, as I mentioned in the article, is a very small island. Um, and it's almost kind of ironic that there was so much manpower and so much thought and planning and effort put into securing this really unremarkable little rock in this huge, vast ocean. Well, the thing about uh, Iwo Jima, it, it, a lot of it has to do with technology. The Japanese had uh, radar stations on Iwo Jima. They had mm. one complete airfield and two others under construction on um, on Iwo Jima. Um, and so that was a concern for um, uh for the, for the U.S. Navy trying to get closer to Japan. Those radar stations were a problem, so those bombing groups mm-hmm. come f- flying in from Saipan and Tinian, they could f- they could pick up on those really, really quickly and mm-hmm. give advanced warning to the home islands. That was a problem. Uh, there was also the issue of the, if those airfields became more uh, fully operational, you know, Japan could fly up fighters to intercept those bombers. So there, that was an issue that, yeah. that, the, that um, the powers that be wanted to take care of. Um, so... Iwo Jima became a target for, for a lot of those reasons. And there's also the, the issue of 
if they take those islands, okay, so if they take that island, Japan can't use the island. And also, if our bombers of our B-29s are having issues, if they're if, if they had been hit, or if they're running out of fuel, or whatever, if they need to make an emergency landing, Iwo Jima is in a fairly decent spot to do that. So for all those reasons, Iwo Jima became a target. Um, and uh, so one of the interesting things about Iwo Jima in terms of um, the Pacific theater of World War II is it's really the only uh, battle where it was it was pretty much an all Navy and Marine affair. There mm-hmm. were some Army troops that landed a, a later, but in terms of the assault forces, it was yeah. all Marines. You had the 3rd Marine Division, you had the 4th Marine Division, you had the 5th Marine Division. Uh, there were no Army divisions there, at least not in the infantry divisions. Uh, so in that sense, it's pretty much the only battle where it was an all-Marine affair. Um, Sorry, uh, Marine Corps, but the Army made a lot more amphibious landings uh, in, in the Pacific uh, than the Marines did. I'm sorry. I know this sounds sacrilegious, but that is that is I'm talking facts here. Uh, the Army had many, many, many uh, landings in the uh, in the Pacific theater. Say what you want. We're just going to edit that part out. Later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, there's a lot of uh, people editing out facts these days. Um, uh, so, and, and even... Um, at Guadalcanal, the army was there. All these other big marine mm-hmm. battles uh, that are in kind of the the uh, the, the, the marines' galaxy of of, mm-hmm. of important fights in the Pacific, uh, the army was was there for most of them. Um, it, but Iwo Jima is the one where it's an, it's an all marine affair. Um, so, and in, in, in terms of the battle itself, uh, there's there's kind of you know when. I teach Marine Corps history at the Naval Academy uh, while I'm here, and, and that's been a lot of fun. One of the things I like to talk to my students about regarding this battle uh, is inter-service rivalry. I think inter-service rivalry is a bit overplayed. There are some differences between the way the Navy does things and the Marines do things and the Army does things. There, there's some of that, but I think most inter-service rivalry has to do with personalities. Um, and anywhere... Uh, General Holland M. Smith is, <laughs> there's probably going to be some issues. Uh, and Quite a personality. <laughs> so he had a big personality. Uh, also, he's from Alabama. Ah. Uh, <laughs> he's from Opelika, Alabama, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he went to Auburn. I went to Alabama. So I've got some issues with Holland yeah. Smith. I've got some issues with Holland Smith. No, um, you know, Holland Smith was in overall control of the Marine landing there, uh, mm-hmm. but his bosses were uh, uh, Spruance, um and you know, uh, I'm forgetting the the names of uh, of, of his immediate. So Nimitz was ultimately in charge. It was was ultimately overseeing all of this. Uh, everybody had to answer to him. But one of his bosses was Spruant. So one, a, a big kind of controversy that happened even before the landing took place was. Uh, how long is the Navy going to bombard the island? Yes. Um, uh, Smith wanted. 10 days mm-hmm. at the very least. And he wanted the landing to be contingent upon the destruction of identified uh, Japanese defensive positions. Spruance wasn't having it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Spruance wasn't being cruel or callous. It's just that Spruance had to deal with a bigger strategic issue, which was, okay, there's a, there's a simultaneous attack happening on the Japanese home islands mm-hmm. that, that, that they didn't want the Japanese alerted to immediately. So if the, or at least they wanted to conserve as much time as possible um, between the attack on Iwo Jima and the carrier raids on uh, on Japan. So there was that issue. Also, it was the issue of expending too much rounds uh, before the uh, attack took place. It would, be, it would be hard to replace all of those things. Mm-hmm. Also, there's the issue of those ships 
waiting off the coast, bombarding the coast for for a long period of time makes them bigger targets for kamikazes and all that other kind of stuff. So there's all kinds of issues that the Navy was thinking about and, and while Smith was just thinking about the landing itself. Uh, and it's all understandable. It, 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 mm-hmm. Both sides are totally understandable. But Smith is only going to get two days. The Marines are only going to get two days for a preparatory bombardment. Also, another argument is, is that um, that the Navy had was that the island had been bombed uh, fairly regularly starting in late 1944. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Navy and Army Air Forces were letting the defenders of Iwo Jima know that they were interested yeah. in the island. They were, they were bombing them fairly regularly. Uh, the, the tempo on it increased as the, as the attack, uh, uh, as the February uh, uh, date uh, approached. But um, Holland Smith is going to be pretty ticked off at the two-day bombardment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the D-Day ends up being February 19th. The um, 5th Marines, if I'm looking at the beach, the 5th Marines land on the left. The 4th Marines under, under uh, Clifton Cates land on the right. Um, the 5th Marines are under Keller, Rock, uh, Keller Rocky. Um, so that's um, February 19th is, is D-Day. Um, the 5th Marines immediately shoot across the island. Um, uh, elements, of the fifth, uh, elements of the 5th Marine Division um, isolate and assault Mount, uh, Mount Suribachi. Uh, and it was on February 23rd that we all see the, uh, the two flag raisings uh, mm-hmm. that everybody's familiar with, particularly the second uh, flag raising a photo, which was taken by Joe Rosenthal. Um, can, can you discuss, discuss the uh, Japanese defenses briefly? Yes. So the Japanese defenses, uh, that was uh, under the control of a Japanese officer, officer by the name of uh, uh, Kuribayashi. Kuribachi, Tadamichi Kuribayashi. Um, please excuse me if I if I'm not getting the um, if I'm not pronouncing that just so. Um, he um, made sure that the uh, Marines who invaded that island were going to have to pay dearly for it. Uh, and this wasn't just surface fortifications. It wasn't just pillboxes. A lot of these uh, Japanese defenses were connected by uh, trenches, underground tunnels. They were connected by wires. They were connected. A lot of them had interlocking fields of fire. Um, there was. It was very much a defense in depth. Gone were mm-hmm. the days of Tarawa and Peleliu, where, where a lot of the of the um, uh, defense was at the beach itself. Right. It was this idea, okay, now we're going to draw the Americans into the island and make them pay dearly for every single inch. And he, and he's going to make sure that the Americans do pay for every single inch of the island. Um, well, I think you wrote, uh, you noted that, you know, they watched the American bombardment from Mount Suribachi thinking, mm-hmm. this is great, they're wasting their rounds. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not hitting anything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I guess... It, it calls into question this notion of would a ten day bombardment have done really what the what they want right so one thing one of the things that bombardments do um, is they cut communication wires. It makes it very, very hard for command and control in that in uh, in that regard. I think Kurabashi knew that I think he knew that was going to happen he, he so he made sure that every single one of the defensive positions, every single officer, every single Japanese soldier was fully aware of what was coming and what was expected of them, which is essentially to fight to the death mm-hmm. um, barring any kind of orders from headquarters, your orders are to essentially fight to the death um, so in that sense, once all the communication gets cut, um, then you know what to do anyway um, However, there is some evidence um, that you know, 
I, I'm not I'm, I'm not the one to say that a 10 day bombardment was going to be useless because they are that we we call it like effects based operations these days. So you, you you fire on to the target in order to create a physical effect. The physical effect being the destruction of enemy defenses. Um, those bombardments did work to an extent. Um, certain surface fortifications were destroyed. Pillboxes, if it was hit by a direct hit, it could be destroyed. Anti-aircraft uh, weaponry was destroyed. Um, not enough of it to save the lives of about 5,000 Marines that died right. mm-hmm. uh, and the 20,000 other Marine casualties. Um, but the it, it's impossible to, to say, and it's not even really, it, it's hard to even speculate what the difference would have been between a two-day bombardment or a 10-day bombardment. It's really hard to say. It's really hard to say, but well, well I know uh, Holland Smith had something to say about it after the battle, though. Yeah, he, he did. He, yeah, um, and again, that that speaks to <laughs> I think Holland Smith's um, acerbic at times personality. Um, and I, I, fans of of Holland Smith out there, I'm not trying to bash the man, uh, but he 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 is um, he he does have a reputation. They call him they call him. Holland, uh, Howlin' Mad Smith for a reason, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's part of it. Um, but two days is what they got, uh, and the and the Japanese defensive positions um, were, you know, uh, I think they were reduced to a, to uh, a certain extent. But uh, at the end of the day, the Marines did their job. the The island fell. Um, uh, Don't know why that's happening. <laughs> We'll clear that we'll up. Clear that make a quick note. Uh, <coughs> Excuse okay. me. Go ahead. Um, so, uh, at the end of the day, however, you know the Marines accomplished their mission. They cleared uh, the island. Uh, the The flag raising took place on February twenty third. Um, but the rest of the battle was a brutal, long, drawn out affair. I think the Marines were told that they could probably take the island in a week or two weeks. And mm-hmm. Kurobayashi and his defenders made sure it took them a, about a month. Yeah. It took, yeah, it took them about it a month. Five, five weeks. Five solid weeks. I think March yeah. 26th is the day that's sticking in my mind, somewhere yeah. in, the, in the March 20s. And it, it seems like the, the farther the Marines advance, the, the tougher the defenses and the, the more bitter the fighting. Right. So it, it, a part of that has to do with just the geography of the island. So the Marines landed at a kind of a, the narrow portion of the island mm-hmm. itself. Um, so the, the fifth Marines land, the fourth, the fifth Marine division lands, the fourth Marine division lands on D day plus two, um, Erskine's third Marine division is released and they land. Um, and, and so now there's more operating space. Mm -hmm. The the island kind of widens out. And so there's, there's now there's room to have these three divisions operating abreast of each other. Now there's room to bring in all the artillery Mm -hmm. and all that other kind of stuff uh, behind them and all the supporting arms behind them. Um, and then it becomes this, uh, this is another thing I try to tell my students about these, because students, 18, 19, 20, 21 year old students, especially here at the Naval Academy, they're, they're interested in tactics. They're interested mm-hmm. in how it was that Marines, uh, and Navy corpsmen were able to do this. Uh, and based on what I've read and based on my own, uh, research, um, the best I can describe it to each and every one of them is every single pillbox and defensive position, every single cave, every single Japanese defensive position was its own kind of unique problem mm-hmm. that Marines there on the ground had to solve one at a time. Uh, and they solved them mm-hmm. using a combination of small arms fire, 
flamethrowers and explosives Mm -hmm. every single one of them uh one at a time and it's very very hard because again these are mutually supported japanese uh, defensive positions Mm -hmm. yeah Um, a lot of them were connected by tunnels and they bypass they knock out one and yes the the japanese would reoccupy Mm -hmm. and then throw in enemy mortar fire and all that other kind of stuff uh and you're talking about a complex dangerous stressful situation for these poor guys who have to do this for over five weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, that five weeks is a testament to how well the island was defended. Um, you know, at that level, you have lieutenants and you have platoon commanders dying, platoon sergeants dying, command and control becomes very, very hard, which is why it gets down to this, the nitty gritty small unit level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how the Marines took this island, one pillbox at a time, one defensive position at a time, losing men along the way. And it was, it was, it was just a tough, brutal affair. The, the, the battle didn't stop on February 23rd with the raising of the flag. It took weeks and weeks of just constant, arduous pushing and fighting to get to the end of the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where most of the casualties took place. Um, and that's where three of the flag raisers died. Uh, three, three of the six um, flag, raiders, flag raisers that were photographed in Joe Rosenthal's photograph don't make it off the island alive. Mm-hmm. And I think that the rest of the battle is uh, what happened in the rest of the battle is a testament to that. Um, I found it interesting that the casualty figures, of course, were extremely high. Uh, I believe some. Uh, about 22,000 Japanese defenders died, mm-hmm. and 5,000 Marines died. Mm-hmm. 20,000 others were wounded. So you look at the overall casualties, and the U.S. losses exceeded the Japanese losses. Yes, yes. Um, which, after the battle, the, and this, we can have this discussion with pretty much any uh, Marine battle, particularly in, in the Pacific and and uh, in, in into Vietnam, the discussion of whether or not it was worth it, whether those casualties were worth it, is going to become important to this battle in particular. Well, you know, one of the ways in which um, the Navy and Marine Corps planners of this battle uh, justified all of this to themselves is that the airstrips that were captured on Iwo Jima do save the lives of some of, of airmen. Now, it, it used to be this uh, a figure had been floating around for a long time that thousands of uh, Army uh, Air Corps um, pilots, thousands of, of those lives had been saved mm-hmm. um, during this uh, because of this um, particular battle. Um, there's some recent scholarship that pushes against that. Um, a, a a historian by the name of Robert S. Burrell just uh, wrote a book uh, about the Battle of Iwo Jima, and he calls into question those figures. Uh, he yeah. thinks some of those figures are inflated. Um, I'm not in a position to argue against him. I, I actually kind of trust his scholarship. Um, so, you know, th- on one hand, you have the 25,000 casualties. You have the, the roughly 5,000 deaths, uh, American deaths. Uh, but on the other hand, the island does lead to saving American lives. How many I'm not sure, and it's hard. One of the remarkable things about the battle is that the the airfield became operational as an emergency field mm-hmm. pretty much immediately. Um, immediately, March Fourth yeah, is the first B twenty nine during while the fighting was still raging. Pretty much immediately, yes. Um, you know, and that speaks to the value of of 
the, the, the location of the island itself. Location, location, location. It's important in real estate and uh, <laughs> and in war. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that speaks to the, the, the value of the island's location. And it speaks to, I think, you know, you – you know, if you are Holland Smith, if you're if you're Raymond Spruance, if you are um, one of the planners of this operation, or if you're one of the commanders of this operation, they had to have known. And I, and I know Holland Smith thought about this because he talks about this in Coral and Brass, his his, um, his memoir. They had to have known what was at stake here. They had to have known that this was going to cost lots of lives. They probably didn't know it was going to take as long as it did, but they knew that this was going to be a bloody battle. They knew that just American, young American men are not going to go home mm-hmm. after this. And when you put lives in that situation and you those lives get sacrificed, um, one of the ways I think they tried to... Uh, one of the ways in which I think they tried to justify that or at least m- make it make sense to themselves was, hey, this we, we saved the lives of other Americans. These Americans mm-hmm. died, but it also leads mm-hmm. to um, saving the lives of others. And you can, you can also make the connection of, okay, so this particular area was secured, which is going to make flying for the B-29 safer, which is going to allow them to bomb the Japanese home islands more efficiently and safely, uh, at least from their perspective, which is going to bring an end to the war faster. Mm-hmm. Um, which is going to save lives later on down the road. Um, so, uh, but yeah, the, the battle took about five weeks, and it was a um, it was a brutal, brutal affair by all accounts. Which is one of the reasons why I think the the battle has taken on so much significance to the Marine Corps today is because of how hard fought it was. Right, significance to the Marine Corps and also to the U.S. public. Right. Right. So exactly. Could, could you? discuss that a little bit because you deal with that mm-hmm. uh, a, good de- a good bit in your article. Yes, yes. So for the, if, if I may deal with the significance of the Marine Corps itself first, um, I think what this battle did was demonstrated once again that as long as the, uh, the sea and air domains around a target are secure, secure enough, mm-hmm. then um, the Marines can take the objective uh with an amphibious assault or amphibious operation in terms of a, you know, amphibious advanced amphibious operations, Marines can be successful in that, especially against well-defended, uh, determined, uh, defenders. This Island helped, uh, this battle helped prove that or helped. Um, I think it probably had already been established at Tarawa and other places and at, and at Peleliu that Marines and the army together can land, uh, in the face of withering, uh, fire and still take their objectives. As long mm-hmm. as the Navy is there protecting the sea, as long as they mm-hmm. have quote unquote command of the sea around the area. And as long as the skies above are more or less clear, uh, then the Marines can take the island. So there's that. Uh, and the Marines had been talking about, um, advanced base seizure and advanced base defense since at least the year 1900. Um, the Navy General Board assigned the Marine Corps the advanced base mission in 1900 uh, for reasons of force structure and manpower and funding and a whole slew of other uh, missions that the Marine Corps had at the time. The Marine Corps just didn't have the, the, the time the, the, and the space and the funding to really focus in on that mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until you had officers like uh, John Russell, John A. Lejeune. I say Lejeune. I know there are people out there that say Lejeune. I'm familiar with the research behind all of that. I just grew up in the Marine Corps with Lejeune 
And I did, that's just what I say. Um, <laughs> no offense. Um, but anyway, uh, Johnny Lejeune uh, wrote a very seminal article on, on that, uh, the mobile uh, defense and seizure advanced bases. I, I, I think that's the verbatim title. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, that was an important article. Uh, that was 1916. Uh, so the Marines have been talking about this for uh, since at least the first decade or two of the 20th century. Uh, and then they're still talking about yeah, it yes, fresh well, again. By yes, the way. yeah, I'm I'm fully aware, <laughs> um, incorrectly in some t- in some places. But yeah, they're they're still talking about it. Um, uh, and so you had Pete Ellis, uh, who was a very very important player in all of this. Um, uh, uh, Lejeune, when he becomes commandant, uh, consolidates Marine Corps schools down in Quantico, and the consolidation of those schools is by 1933. You have a group of officers, uh, Marine Corps officers, and you have a commandant uh, in the form of uh, uh, Ben. Uh, you, you have Fuller, and then you have Russell really trying to get the Marine Corps behind this new fleet Marine force force structure uh, and really behind this idea of amphibious uh, assaults uh, and making the Marine Corps a weapon of the U.S. fleet. Um, and this that took a long time for all of that to uh, become a reality for the Marine Corps. Uh, they, they were doing a lot of small wars at the time. They were in Haiti. They were in, they were in the Dominican Republic all through the 20s mm-hmm. and then uh, through the 1930s. It was the early part of the 1930s, and then they were also in Nicaragua. So the, man, the, the Marine Corps was being pulled in these different directions, um, and once those interventions uh, came to a close, the Marines could finally focus in on this uh, one mission, this one mission. It would not be their only mission, but it was one mission that they could pitch to say that, hey, we can do this too. Um, and what? Ha- and it, it, it turns out battles like Iwo Jima proved that they were right. Yeah. They were right in thinking about those things. They were right to uh, think ahead and plan uh, and – um, yeah, and their planning influenced the army. Too. Absolutely, absolutely. Their planning influenced the army. The um, the tentative manual for landing operations, uh, I mean, essentially became um, the manual that the navy and the army used as well. It was it was, it was the marines who wrote the thing. Um, so um, it was a very very influential document. Um, we, we talked about Iwo Jima being a very very small island, all out of proportion to its strategic significance. The Marine Corps. You could say the same about the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, being a small institution, had an impact on mm-hmm. the American war effort, all out of proportion to its size. Mm-hmm. It had a very, very important intellectual impact on the U.S. military and fighting in the Pacific. Uh, and it's, it's through that planning for amphibious operations, working with the Navy, logistics, uh, uh Fire and control, air power—you know—all of that stuff comes together uh, in an amphibious operation. And the Marines got pretty; were the ones sitting down and making sure that we—they had some sort of semblance of an idea of how they were going to do this. Mm-hmm. There was a learning curve all throughout the war. The Marines learned from Guadalcanal to uh, Cape Gloucester to. Tarawa to Peleliu to Saipan, they were constantly learning. And God forbid, if there would have been more, if there were, if, if Operation Olympic and Coronet actually took place uh, in the fall of 1945, um, the Marines would have taken lessons learned from Iwo Jima and lessons mm-hmm. learned from Okinawa and, and applied that to those landings too. So they were constantly learning, uh, and they were constantly trying to make this better. Um, but they could point to battles of battles like Iwo Jima uh, and okay. Something's going right. 
You know, mm-hmm. as long as the Navy's doing their job in the, at sea and as long as the Air Forces are doing their job above the island, the Marines can take the island. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a kind of a military, purely military sense, there's that. And it, so I, I, mentioned, I, I mentioned in the article, you know, that there's an importance for the Battle of Iwo Jima regarding mission. There's also tradition in public relations. Speaking of traditions, um, you know, and I, I speak of this mostly not as an academic military uh, naval historian. I speak of this mostly as a former Marine myself, which is, you know, going through boot camp at, you know, at Paris Island, the, the, there's Felix de Wilden's statue right there near, near, the, near the parade deck. Yeah, based on Joe, Joe Rosenthal's, Rosenthal's photograph iconic of, photograph. Uh, iconic photograph of uh, the, the six flag raisers on Iwo Jima. So that's always in the background, and you're, they drill into you these standards of courage and sacrifice and um, toughness um, and mental quickness and all that other kind of stuff. And they pointed to Iwo Jima as an example of, okay, this is what is expected of you. This, this is what could be expected of you, uh, mm-hmm. and be prepared to do that. Well, so this raises an interesting, <coughs> excuse me. This raises an interesting question. You know, if you'd gone to Marine boot camp in January 1942, Mm. uh, you'd be hearing about Below Wood, Mm -hmm. right? If you went to Marine boot camp in January 1968, you'd be hearing about Iwo Jima. Mm. You went to boot camp in January 2002, more or less. Yeah, in 2002. Yeah, in 2002. You you didn't hear about Quezon or Hway City so much. It was still Iwo Jima. What makes that? Uh, I mean, we've talked about what makes it a touchstone, but what mm-hmm. makes it still the touchstone when mm-hmm. there are right. big battles, big important moments right. before and and important moments afterwards? Right. So um, I will say, however, that the rifle ranges at Paris Island are named after Vietnam battles, <laughs> okay, <laughs> like Starlight Range and stuff like that. Um, so I. I'll, I'll answer that by saying that a lot of these battles are in uh, are part of the Marine Corps' um, ethos. You know, they're a part. They're they're kind of ingrained into um, uh, what it means to be a Marine and what informs Marine identity and all that other kind of stuff. Iwo Jima, however, is one of the bigger ones. Iwo Jima, however, is one of the bigger ones, um, and I think in part because of how much how well known it is. Um, and this gets me to the whole public relations part of everything. Uh, the public relations angle of this, the public image angle of this, is incredibly significant, and I think it's probably one of the most lasting reasons why we're still we're sitting here right now talking about the Battle of Iwo Jima. That photograph that Joe Rosenthal took, um, once it hit, once it went back to the United States, it, it, people immediately re- recognized how much of a powerful image it was, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it helped. It became the single single photograph that informed one of the largest bond drives uh, in the entire mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. of the war. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, it won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, uh, it, it became um, uh, a mo- it became kind of a motivation for statues and uh, stamps and uh, billboards and it just it really just spread out from there and it became identifiable with uh, the American war effort but it also became identifiable with the U.S. Marines. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very much every single image that you see of those flag raisers on Mount Sarabachi is um, kind of an implicit. It's it's an advertisement for the Marine Corps, both uh, Mm -hmm. explicitly and implicitly. Um, 
it's a it, it shows the public okay, this is what this is who Marines are this is what Marines do this is what they are capable of um, and it, it's one of the most readily identifiable uh, images to ever come out of that war and there's lots of images that came out of that war um, and and I, and I talk about this today that you know the significance behind that image. You know, it gets people thinking about what Marines have done. It gets people thinking about what Americans have accomplished in the past. When General Mattis was was at the, at that speech, and he was he was telling the audience about how um, he, he was in he was in Fallujah in 2004, and he overheard uh, a corporal talking to one of his Marines. This Marine said to the corporal, um, "Is this going to be tough?" And the corporal said, uh, "Yes, but we took Iwo Jima. Fallujah won't be nothing." And I thought that was a very important example of how, to this very day, years after the fact, that this is still a very, very important battle uh, for the Marine Corps. It, it's it's kind of the standard with which Marines are expected to uh, behave. We've been talking here with Dr. Mark Fulce. He's the class of 1957 postdoctoral research fellow at the U.S. Naval Academy. He's a Marine Corps veteran of Afghanistan and Iraq. The article is The Common Will Triumphant in the February Naval History on the Battle of Iwo Jima, its importance to the country, to the Marine Corps. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for taking time to come join us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. This was a pl- The pleasure was all on this side of the table. Trust me. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. Maybe we can uh, get some more articles, maybe on some more recent battles that you have at least tangential or indirect knowledge of uh, more experientially. We'd love to hear from you again. Richard, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. This has been the Naval History Edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Join us again on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or wherever podcasts can be found. And remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute.